Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books, a fine publication. Joining me today is my co-host, Tom Lutz. Hi, Tom. How are you today? Very good. Thank you, Lori. And then also joining us will be author Tracy Tynan, a costume designer and a writer, and the daughter of two very famous kind of insane people, the theater critic and writer Kenneth Tynan and the novelist Elaine Dundee. Very interesting childhood that she writes about in her new book, Wear and Tear the Threads of My Life. Interesting in the Chinese curse sense. Exactly. We are thrilled to have in the studio today Tracy Tynan, who has a new book out called Wear and Tear, completely fascinating, a memoir of growing up. Welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here. A couple of nice puns in the title, <laughs> Wear and Tear and The Threads of My Life is the subtitle. Three words, two truths. <laughs> Tracy, I so enjoyed your book. Thank I had you. two kind of conflicting thoughts while reading it. One, I was consumed with jealousy about parts of your childhood in that I felt like you were one of the girls in the world of Henry Orient, <laughs> with glamorous, yeah. big city, famous people, or like an early Sally Draper. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, I also thought, you know that Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times? Yes. I thought, may you have interesting parents. <laughs> so it was a real kind of double-edged sword. Um, was it difficult to write about your childhood? And did you find like Nabokov, once you started it opened the doors of memory? Well, it's been a long process, and I've been writing this book, I guess, in various forms for probably 15 years or so, little bits of it I would write. And I think in some ways it was helpful and maybe even a little bit cathartic to write about these experiences and get them down. But one of the key issues is that a lot of the people are dead. And that's a big help about writing, particularly about your parents. Yeah. And I think that gave me a certain amount of freedom. And also, both my parents had written about their lives. My mother had written a memoir. My father had done his diaries. So as we refer to it in the family, there's a lot of Tynanania out there, <laughs> the biography of my father. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of their point of view of their lives. So... That, in a way, gave me the freedom to write my point of view of my life and their life. So, Tracy, just for our listeners who may not know, could you just give us a brief biographical description of your dad and your mom? So, my father was Kenneth Peacock Tynan, and he was a drama critic in England for many years. And he was also, in the 50s, briefly a drama critic for The New Yorker. And then he was the dramaturge for the National Theatre in England when it started out with Larry Olivier as the director. And then he also was the creator of O Calcutta. And then at the end of his life, he wrote profiles for The New Yorker. Right. And my mother, Elaine Dundee, she was American, and she started out as an actress. And then she became a novelist. She wrote a novel called The Dud Avocado. Which, which I hear is a cult classic, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's sort of based on her experience of being a young actress in Paris when she lived there. 
And then she met my father and her acting career went down a little bit. And she started writing novels, The Dot Avocado and The Old Man and Me. And then later on in her life, she started writing biographies. And she wrote a very well thought of book about Elvis Presley and his mother called Gladys and Elvis. And she also wrote a book about Peter Finch. And she also wrote a book about Faraday, Louisiana, and the people that have been born there. How did that come about? Well, she fell in love with the South, with Mississippi, when she was doing the research on Elvis and Gladys. Uh-huh. And it's kind of strange because she was never really into Elvis that much when I was growing up. It was kind of a thing she discovered. And then after that, everything became about Elvis. I mean, you couldn't have a conversation with her that wasn't Elvis involved. And Elvis and Gladys were very close, as I recall. Yes, yes, yes. one way of putting it, yes. And we should say that your career has been as a costume designer. That's correct. So clothes have been central to your life. And when you go back to write about your childhood, in part you're writing about the relationship you had to clothes in those days. And not every costume designer could end up finding a picture of their parents for the cover in which they're both wearing leopard skin pants. Yes, it's a pretty astonishing (laughs) picture. Um, And it was for the Daily Mail interior book of that year, of 1958. So it was actually really meant to be about the interiors. Oh, uh And they just happened to be posing (laughs) in their leopard skin pants. That's what they were wearing that day. Yeah, just cash fab (laughs) on a zebra skin sofa. But also behind is this Hieronymus Bosch mural that comes from the Garden of Earthly Delights, which was blown up in black and white on our living room wall. And so that was pretty intense. And yes. when you were too freaked out to look at that, then you could only look at photographs of bullfights and the other Well, yes. The My father was a big bullfight aficionado. And so all over the house, there were drawings and some bullfight memorabilia and stuff like that. It's so interesting to watch you figure out what's going on in your house as a child. It's kind of like what Maisie knew. <laughs> Because you're getting bits and pieces. They're trying to protect you, but it's impossible to protect you from it because it's so overflowing. Well, they're doing the best they can. I mean, I really do feel that about them. I mean, neither of them had particularly stellar childhoods. My mother was brought up by rather grim German nannies. My father was illegitimate and was kind of living with his mother, this kind of secret life in Birmingham. So neither of them had a family situation to really understand how to bring up children. (laughs) And yet your father, even by the time he goes to uh, university, is a dandy. He's dressing. There's a great description of the outfit that he... Yes, he had one of his outfits was made out of the green bays from billiard tables. And uh, <laughs> I want an outfit like that. Yeah, he did have this stylishness. And I think also clothing was important for him for reinventing himself. I mean, he left Birmingham and he really left it behind. He left the northern Birmingham accent. He left everything behind and went to Oxford and became this other person without an accent. And the clothing, I think, was part of his transformation. And clothing, of course, is a huge part of the story. I like how the dynamic between you and your mother when you went shopping as a young woman is kind of like a healthier version of bulimia or anorexia in that you had to have control over your own body because things were so out of control in your house. And when you and your mother would go shopping, 
you really wanted to take your time and it was a big tension between you. It's like you were saying, no, I'm going to craft my identity carefully in my own way on my own time and fuck you. Right. (laughs) And uh, that was a very interesting part of the book. I mean, it's funny when you have children and then you experience the clothing dynamic with the children and you see how all these things come back to haunt you. But with my mother, I knew very specifically what I wanted and I would not stop until I found it. And for her, this was obviously quite tedious. And she came up with this idea of giving me a clothing allowance. And that was a big breakthrough because then I was free on my own to get what I wanted when I wanted. Yeah, that's where I was starting yeah. to become very envious and feel like you were in the lives of Henry Orient. <laughs> <laughs> You're much younger than I am, but in our generations, we had no idea about what it meant to be a child of an alcoholic, what that dynamic was, and even the kind of these epic battles that your parents would have breaking crockery and whatnot (laughs) and drawing their friends into them and threatening to jump off the roof and all of this stuff. We had no language for that and nobody was talking about it around us, right? No, and I think particularly in England, everybody was just drinking away and what's the problem and you're not drinking, what's the matter with you? And it was such a culture. And I think that also dovetailed with this certain love of drama. I mean, my father Mm -hmm. was a drama critic. My mother was originally an actress. And if things weren't dramatic, then they kind of weren't alive. And I think that was another aspect that played into their world. And I was kind of the audience. You know, what role was there left? There wasn't Mm -hmm. role for more drama. They had already taken over that. And Honestly, it was sort of fascinating in a kind of train wreck way, watching what was going to happen next. And I think as I grew older, I started to get that sort of need for drama, too. And it's pretty perilous. It is. It's very perilous. And you say that at one point that you became a voyeur Mm -hmm. um, in response to this, which I think was a healthy response. I became like Anne Frank hiding from the Nazis (laughs) in my... Well, if Anne Frank was a juvenile delinquent, yeah. (laughs) So I think that assuming the role of voyeur is a way to separate yourself from what's happening and saying, I'm the watcher, not part of the drama. Right. I think the thing that's not good about that is you kind of, I think there's one of these psychological terms, you sort of split off. Right. Where you're not really there and you're not really letting your emotions get to you. And as you get older, that can become complicated. But certainly the whole alcohol thing. I mean, my mother was in this very reputable place, Riggs, Austin Riggs Center, psychiatric Mm -hmm. place for five years. And they never dealt with her alcoholism. And she left there and promptly went into drugs and more alcohol and drugs. And it took a really, really, really long time for her to finally get into the program and get through that whole process. And then at the age of 81, she was finally diagnosed as bipolar. Mm. Uh, That's helpful. And for all those years, she'd essentially been self-medicating herself. That didn't necessarily help you forgive her. No, I'm afraid. I mean, you do your best. But, but There's a comment that uh, you made in the book where you're working on major films as a costume designer, and she keeps saying to you, what is it you do? 
It reminded me of Wendy Wasserstein's mother, Lola, when Wendy won the Pulitzer Prize. Her mother was like, "Uh, Pulitzer, I mean, I've heard of the Nobel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That certain kind of of mother. Yeah, yeah. But I also thought your father, in a kind of a sexist way, your father kind of fared better after the divorce. He found a woman to take care of him, take care of his legacy, harder for the woman. No, she definitely had a tough time of it. And if you read her memoir, my father was fairly brutal to her. I mean, physically brutal. And she suffered a lot. On the other side of that, there are people that would say, if Ken hit Elaine, she deserved it, which is a terrible thing to say. But there was that dynamic between them where they just drove each other crazy. But the thing I think that's most interesting in terms of my mother is that she could be a terrific friend to other people. And people really loved her, and she had very loyal friends, and they just thought that she was the best. It was just in her family, she couldn't quite figure it out. You talk about being at the funeral or memorial service. You know, I've heard this story in other guises, and then hearing a description of her from her friends about what a good friend she was that you didn't necessarily recognize. And I think that's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah to learn at someone's funeral all of the things you didn't know about them. Yeah, and she really did not like you to accomplish anything. Is that fair to say? I think she wanted me to, but she didn't quite understand how. And it had been a continuing theme of my life. What is Tracy going to do when she grows up, you Mm -hmm. know? And it's something that I did struggle with. And I think the whole thing of having a family, which was for me incredibly important, and being as dedicated as one can be to one's family, as Dr. Winnicott says, the good enough mother. Exactly. That's, yes. that's yeah, my bar. That's okay. mine too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think she really understood what that entailed. Things like cooking meals and being around and not going out every night. She just hadn't had that experience, I think. are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. We are in the studio with Evan Kindley, our senior humanities editor at LARB, which I hear is an excellent publication. Also, Evan has a book out recently called Questionnaire, which is a lovely, very classy, elegant little book. Welcome back, Evan. Thank you. So I understand you have a book recommendation for us. I do. We didn't have time to fit it in last time. So I just recently had my first child. Mazel tov. Oh, thank you. Boy or girl? Girl. Uh Uh-huh. Cute or not cute? Uh, she's okay. Uh-huh. She's okay. Sort of middle. <laughs> no, she's very cute. I disagree. <laughs> yes. Um, so her name is Agnes. And I've been reading, aside from this sort of contemporary parenting books about mm-hmm. sleeping and, and various things, I've been reading uh, D.W. Winnicott, who is the British psychoanalyst, child psychologist. Mm-hmm. Big influence on Lacan. Oh, yeah, that's right. And kind of, um, I don't know exactly where he fits in in the history of psychoanalysis, certainly post-Freud kind of a more practically minded, I would say, than Freud, more of a clinician, more his things are based really heavily in sort of his experience working with small children. 
And isn't he the kind of father of behavior? object relations theory? Is, oh. it, is, that, is that him? Or Sounds is that, right. That might be Melanie Klein. They're in the same school. Yeah, they're yeah. in the same school. I'm, they're the I'm, father and mother. Yes, right. right. I um, see him quoted all the time. He's a favorite of he is, and writing doctorates. He is. And I think part of the reason is that he's actually a very interesting writer. He's a very interesting literary style. I know the critic and um, psychoanalyst Adam Phillips, like Simulon, has written a book about him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always been interested in him, and I thought, you know, I have a baby now. It's a good time to read Winnicott and see what he says, see if it can help me out. So I've been reading this book called The Child, the Family, and the Outside World, right. which I think is possibly a little bit of an atypical Winnicott book. It's it's adapted from talks he gave on the BBC in the mid-60s and has an interesting tone that kind of drifts between very plain-spoken, sort of directly addressed to mothers saying, you will have noticed that your baby does this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then more kind of what I think of as typical psychoanalytic, not jargon exactly, but technical language. And I'm just really fascinated by it. To me, it drifts between seeming kind of condescending and dated in terms of the, the kinds of advice it gives to, to mothers and parents to being incredibly insightful and interesting to just being bizarre. Between the way he writes and the particular theories he held, he just comes up with very strange formulations and just really weird sentences. Could you give us an example of maybe a strange theory of his? A strange theory, yeah, sure. So he has a theory about stealing, that stealing is a behavior that develops early, and he sees it as a kind of regression. Young children steal in order to recreate a relation to their mother where the, I think he puts it like, they have a right to steal from their mother. The mother supplies, they're entitled to take anything they want. Mm -hmm. So that when young children steal, that's what they're doing is they're reverting to the stage where they feel entitled to just take what they want. Mm -hmm. And he kind of sees, I think, theft by adults as a crime as sort of an expression of this same kind of impressive. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and he has this great line where he says, the child who is thieving is an infant looking for the mother or for the person from whom he had a right to steal. The shock of having one's bicycle stolen is not, however, mitigated by the knowledge that the thief was unconsciously looking for his mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, so just really bizarre, especially out of context, just these almost surreal sentences. Um, But it's really interesting, and and especially to read it as a a new father is is very illuminating. Yeah, I I never have thought of that as stealing the act of drinking milk from the mother. I thought of it kind of as sharing. But you're right. It is. You mean I mean, forcing he's other right. people to share? <laughs> it is kind of stealing. He's very into the idea that, that infants are greedy uh-huh. and selfish. Is he yeah. the one who said that a hungry infant is like a, a howling wolf? That sounds like him. Yeah. Not sure. <laughs> and is he also the the one who started the idea of good enough mothering? Oh, yeah. No, that's wait, him. That is him. Yeah. Is it? Oh, uh, I thought that was Bettelheim. Okay. Again, I think they, there was some overlap in uh-huh. terms of their circles. But yeah, good enough mothering is a big concept of his. That's a great concept, I think. <laughs> it really kind of lets all parents off the hook yeah. a little bit, that concept is. So I like it, too. He kind of just, uh, just thinks you have to be there. Another thing he says is something like, the most important thing a father can do is be alive. And so the author is D.W. Winnicott, now that we have two alive fathers in the room. D.W. Winnicott and the, and uh, the and book the, is... The book is The Child, the Family, and the Outside World. Thanks for coming in and telling us about it, Em. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you. And now back to our interview with Tracy Tynan. thinking particularly of the scene when you cook dinner when you make your hamburgers mm. and it's really a horrible scene Can yeah you, that was kind of a turning point yeah well 
I had this situation because my parents were divorced. I spent one holiday with one parent and one holiday with the other. And this was my holiday with my mother. And we were out in the Hamptons and it should have been really nice. It was by the beach. It was lovely. And I decided I was going to make hamburgers. And she just was drunk and out of control and staggering around and waving a knife and complaining that I hadn't done them right. And I was just really scared because I just thought something really bad could happen here. And luckily, I managed to sort of barricade myself in my room and call a friend and figure out a way to leave. And mm. I was fortunate that, A, I had friends to go to that weren't that far away, which possible. And the sort of good news about having alcoholic parents is they don't sort of helicopter over you the way <laughs> yes. regular parents do. They kind of <laughs> let you go, you know, oh, you're going to leave? Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, just call me, stay in touch. So you have a lot of freedom. That was a really amazing scene as well. Yeah. At the, after one of these blow-ups, maybe it's the same one, I can't mm -hmm. remember, in which um, you say, I'm leaving, and your mother looks up briefly and says, keep in touch. <laughs> <laughs> the detail in that scene that really got me was you serve the hamburgers right. that you've made, and she says, there's not enough pepper in it, and takes out a, a jar of peppercorns and just pours them all over right, both plates. Right, right, right. was kind of destroying what you had created. And that's why I got the sense that somehow you doing something was itself a threat to her. Yeah, again, I think these are things that were very unconscious in yeah. her, because I know that in her way, she loved me, and she was very sad that we didn't have a closer relationship. Mm -hmm. But as I grew older, I was almost like allergic to her. I couldn't be in the same... It's like she sucked all the oxygen out of it. Well, She's a narcissistic person, too. Yeah. It doesn't help. I wanted to talk a little bit about the intellectual climate in the mm -hmm. house. I mean, your father was a very well-known theater critic. You went to the theater all the time. There's a scene where you go to see Peter Pan, and then you're sitting in the back of the limousine with Mary Martin, and then you throw up on her. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, that's mind-blowing. But I would talk about, you discuss theater with your dad. Talk about his kind of aesthetic, what his ideas were and what his taste was like. One of the great things about my father was his passion for theater. He loved theater, and he wanted to communicate that to anybody. So in terms of me as a young child, it was telling me stories, telling the stories of the plays. They were like stories that he would tell me. Then as I got older, he was just always pushing to discover new things, whether it was Bertolt Brecht or John Osborne or whoever it was, he was trying to, when he worked for the National Theatre, he got into a lot of trouble there for doing very risque kind of plays and things. And then there was O Calcutta, <laughs> which, mm. you know... Which you explained the title, which I didn't, I had never heard before. That was very interesting. Right. O Calcutta is from the French, O Calcutain, which is, oh, what an ass you've got. Uh. But even with that, he felt he was pushing the boundaries of sexual acceptance and sexual mores and allowing people to express themselves as they wanted. And the opening scene of O Calcutta is this beautiful naked dance between two dancers. And he had a lot of interesting people writing things for that. And I mean, unfortunately, it became a kind of somewhat sleazy, whatever. Yeah, I saw thing. it very late in its yeah, life, and yeah. I remember this armrest on the theater seat coming off, and it was very dusty. But it ran for, what, 20 years? Yeah, I think 11 or 12. Of course, yeah. my father, being a really bad businessman, managed to 
get messed up and not get any real money for it. Or So that was a whole other saga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet um, he was very free thinking about sex in his work. But when you were a kid and you were playing and you were you mooned one of your friends, he took you aside and, and says, you're acting like a whore. <laughs> well, the whore thing actually came a bit later when uh, he overheard a conversation when I was like 12 or 13, when I was talking on the phone about a party and he somehow thought I'd been sleeping with my boyfriend. And he actually said to me, oh, you're acting like Lolita, which I hadn't read, of course, at that time. So, of course, I ran off to read Lolita and was like, hmm, I don't know that I'm really like Lolita, but it's a good book. But he good, was Good very, accidental parenting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as well as being a kind of sexual revolutionary, your father was also a man of the left. He was politically active. Very definitely. He was always involved in all left-wing causes in England and and very vocal. In England, we had banned the bomb and CND and... Campaign for nuclear disarmament. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. There were marches, and I would go on some of those marches with them. He was part of a very left-wing milieu. I think some people considered him a bit of a champagne socialist, you know, the Tom Wolfe thing, because he certainly wasn't going to give up the good things in life to support the workers' revolution. But he saw the need for a change. And of course, the sexual revolution was, for a lot of people, was one of the wedges into the future. Absolutely. And he also was very involved in the 50s when there was the whole issue of Lady Chatterley's lover and that being allowed to be published. And he was, I think, testified at court. Censorship, that was a really big issue. And and that was the big issue, actually, with O Calcutta when it was performed in England. This woman, Mary Whitehouse, wanted it banned. And there was all sorts of sort of issues around that. It was a a prime censorship battle in those years. Yeah. What kind of theater did he not like? I think he was coming out of the very conventional drawing room dramas that had been going on in England for quite a while and that were very kind of rarefied and kind of slightly silly as far as he was concerned. Stodgy. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. He liked vaudeville. He liked all different kinds. He wasn't a snob in a way, Mm -hmm. you know. He liked low, high, Mm -hmm. whatever. Your father is a a figure writing a book about Oscar Hammerstein II, and there's actually a scene that that your father's kind of important Uh. in, which is Hammerstein's being interviewed about the year or a year and a half before his death by Mike Wallace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this point in his career, you know, at at the beginning, he's very much a revolutionary. Every musical is something that someone hasn't seen before. By this point, I think maybe he's written The Sound of Music or is writing The Sound of Music which was reviled by a wide variety of young critics for obvious reasons, two of them being nuns and children. And Mike Wallace wants Hammerstein to answer the critique of his own squareness, Mm -hmm. which he is starting to realize Mm -hmm. that he's becoming passe. And he says, Kenneth Tynan says that you have given up the joys of urbanity for trees and grass and nature. And Hammerstein is very dignified and, you know, he knew your dad. Right. And he says, I do like trees and grass and nature, and I bet Kenneth Tynan likes them too, <laughs> which I thought was a nice answer. <laughs> in, in certain controlled situations. <laughs> I, of course, can't remember, but he had a very famous 
negative review of The Sound of Music. Yes, and, I'll have to find that. Yeah, and I can't remember the quote, but uh. it's pretty horrible. So I'm surprised that Hammerstein even brought my father's name up without well, spitting. Well, no, it was Mike Wallace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 but even wanted to engage about it. Uh, Did you go to see musicals at all? Yeah, no. Aside from... Yeah, I mean, my father would come back from America with record albums of musicals, and we would sing along to them. Music Man, Fiorella, I mean, all those things I grew up with. And he loved musicals. He just loved them, mm. you know. But if you think about John Osborne versus The Sound of Music, you can see that his <laughs> real aesthetic commitments are right. otherwise. Yeah, or Brittle Brecht or whatever. Right. But like I said, he did have plebeian taste, too, mm -hmm. you know. Mm. Your mom had been working on a book about Lulu in Hollywood. No, oh. my father oh. did a profile for right. The New Yorker. Very famous profile. Of Louise Brooks. Yes, and sort of rediscovered her because right. she'd been away in Eastman. I think she was selling hose at Macy's at one point. Right. One the, I, th this was even later on where I think she was just living in a room and quietly drinking herself to death. This is um, one of the great stars of the silent screen. Right. Pandora's box. Right. He, it was a wonderful thing for him to rediscover her, and she was a complete fan of him. She was very actual intellectual and read a tremendous amount. And that was a really wonderful thing. But then wasn't someone going to do something? My stepmother wrote a screenplay based on that Sorry. relationship. Right. And actually, it still carries on. My brother, my half-brother, has taken up the mantle, and they are trying to get it on in some way. They have a director attached. and uh, I mean, it is a fascinating story. It would yeah. make an amazing film. I hope that gets, yes, that gets uh, made. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's been so close so many times, like films so often are, but you never know. This might be the time. Your father's celebrity profiles are collected in a book called Show People, and there's possibly other books. I loved that book when I was in college. He wrote with a cultural appreciation that I didn't see in other celebrity profiles of a, a very wide cultural appreciation and context and was very, very good at it. Yeah, no, and I think his choice of people, you know, Johnny Carson, who would think to write a New Yorker profile about Johnny mm -hmm. Carson at that time, you know, mm -hmm. we're talking about the 70s and everybody watched him every night and they were kind of riveted by what he did and then to have somebody really explain it to them of his technique and how brilliant he was and all that. And then the Mel Brooks one is just fantastic, too. No, they're very good pieces, I think. Did he have any feelings of insecurity, like, I should be doing more important well, work than this? Or what he really wanted to do was direct a film. It's a terrible thing. You come to Hollywood and you I have to direct, direct a film. <laughs> and this actually happened a little before, but he had a script, and it was kind of a sexual thing, a menage a trois type thing. And again, it fairly close bunch of times. I think he wanted to direct, having been a critic. He started out, actually, after he left Oxford. He had done some directing of theater and had been fired <laughs> by the leading lady in one thing. So I think that was his kind of secret wish. This book is also very well written. Oh, thank really you. Really nicely you. paced scenes. You manage to stay in your young girl's <laughs> consciousness as you tell those stories and you grow up in front of her eyes. It's very nicely done. Are you working on another book, or was this the book you needed to write and you're done? I don't know. I just don't know. It, it took a long time for me to write this and to sort of get it right as I wanted to. 
So I'm not quite sure what the next step would be. I mean, what I'd written before, funnily enough, was screenplays. I got paid for a few, but never went further. But I think that was actually very helpful, learning about structure, learning about dialogue and things like that. So I don't know. At this particular moment, I'm just not quite sure. You've had an experience that I think very few people, certainly Americans, have, which is that you were privy at a relatively young age to some of the sexual goings-on of your father and your mother. For instance, your father had a kind of an S&M affair relationship, and there were love letters between him and this woman, mm-hmm. and she, which you saw. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you come to the place where you say, you know, they were human beings, and you even kind of interestingly analyze why your father may have been into S&M. What is that like to contemplate with that kind of intimacy? Because I think that's an experience many people do not have. Laurie's Lori, <laughs> really hoping that she doesn't find a cache of letters of her father's uh, I don't like really <laughs> not see that. Uh, you know, I think it's changed over the years. When I initially found out I was in my mid-20s, and it's, what is that, too much information, yeah, right. TMI, from my father, who's telling me about this affair that he's having with this woman and that she agrees to his sexual predilections and this is a wonderful thing for him. And, and it's hard because S&M doesn't appeal to me, so I'm thinking, well, I don't know. That doesn't really sound like a lot of fun to me to have people doing these weird things to you. I mean, I think the key thing with my father was always consenting adults <laughs> that were doing this. Then as I grew older, I just began to understand that this was his way of expressing himself, doing his thing, and it really didn't have a lot to do with me personally. In his diaries, he does, I think, give a description of it, which does make it comprehensible in some way, why somebody would want to do this. I mean, that's the big question. Why, why, why? Mm. And he explains it rather well in his brilliant writing. And I just had to kind of let go of that and say, okay, well, that's his thing. I've had a very different experience in my life. And lots of therapy. Yes. Who has it? Speaking of uh, consenting adults, there is a fascinating scene early on where you are a young girl, you're in a bikini, and you've learned to water ski, and you end up water skiing with Roman Polanski. (laughs) Oh, my God. And, of course, everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen here. And uh, one of the things he does is he decides that he's going to do a flying Walendas thing and put you on his uh, neck and shoulders and go water skiing with you. I kept kind of waiting for the... Yeah. You're lucky that that's the end of the story. Well, you see, that there's another part. My father collaborated with Roman on a British film production of Macbeth. And at that time, I guess I was around 16 years old. And I can't really quite remember how this came about, but I ended up going out on a date with Roman. Wow. Mm-hmm. With my father knowing that I was going on a date, okay, and we're on this date, and we're talking, and whatever. And he's incredibly charming, Roman. Let's not forget oh, yeah. this, yes, course, you yeah. know, yeah. and super smart. Right. right. And this was actually, I guess, maybe eight months or so after Sharon had been killed. Mm-hmm. And he was quite open about how terrible he felt and how guilty he felt that he was alive, that somehow mm-hmm. she had suffered and everything. Anyway, we were talking about feminism. He said, oh, 
you're too feminist for me. I need to introduce you to my friend Warren. He's the one that will, you know, you'll be able to talk to. So much better. So we all wind up at a club with Warren and the whole group of people. And on the way, we stopped at Victor Lowne's house, who is the head of the Playboy Club. And he had this incredible collection of Japanese pornographic etchings in his house, which you all had to go and look at. So I had some previous, as it were, relationship with Roman. He didn't make a pass at me, and I actually ended up going home with Warren, not going home with him. But there was a moment there where I had to sort of make a choice, and mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? This is just not for me. I'm just not this. Well, you may be the only woman who ever <laughs> said no. Cool or whatever. <laughs> and, and he was a Julie Christie at the time. Yeah. It's just like, hmm. Believe me, I probably regretted it afterwards. (laughs) It would have been a nice... But anyway, so I kind of knew what Roman was about. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was always a stream of young girls. When he was making that film, What? And I was with this guy, Herky, and there was always young girls. And so in a way, I was a little bit inured. I knew that I protect myself, as it were. Well, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Tracy. The the book is Wear and Tear, The Threads of My Life. Thanks for coming in and talking oh, to us. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Love Thanks. it. Thank you. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and Questionable Moral Center. Jim Lane, executive producer. Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. And thanks to Tracy Tynan. Longer versions of our interviews with our guests are available on our website, thelareviewofbooks.org. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, and all other podcast purveyors and platforms. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 